Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable businesses and communities. I'm Kiff Scheuer, the Climate Change Program Director at the Local Government Commission. I'll be your host for this monthly series on adaptation and livable communities, where we've been discussing ways we can create more resilient communities by fostering knowledge exchange, identifying new resources, and sharing innovative perspectives and tools. Today, I'm proud to have a guest, Dr. Chris Lebon. Chris is the Executive Officer of Environmental Compliance and Sustainability at Los Angeles County Metropolitan Transportation Agency. At LA Metro, Chris oversees their internationally recognized environmental sustainability and energy initiatives. Chris has a Bachelor's of Science in Geology, a Master's in Civil Engineering, and earned his PhD in Environmental Science and Engineering from UCLA. Chris is also a widely published author and national speaker and serves on a number of commissions and working groups, including chairing the Sustainability Committee for the American Society of Civil Engineers, serving on the National Council for Environmental Policy and Technology at US EPA, and more relevant to our conversation today, serving on California's AB 2800 Climate Safe Infrastructure Working Group run by the California Department of Natural Resources. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with the working group, it's a project that came about through uh, Assemblyman Quirk in 2016 that was intended to look at the scientific and engineering aspects of infrastructure and how to make them more resilient to the growing threats of climate change. The working group just wrapped up about a year-long process. Chris was involved in that, and I'm glad to have Chris here to talk about what the working group came to, some of the recommendations, some of his insights, and what he sees uh, in the field related to adaptation, infrastructure, and engineering. So, Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much, Kev, for the opportunity to not only talk about the AB 2800 work, but, you know, maybe the opportunity as well as we move along with some of the things that we're talking about here in terms of some of the other things are happening nationally with the engineering societies as well as here at LA Metro. So again, thank you so much for this opportunity to talk to you today. Well, really looking forward to it. Why don't we start with the working group? I'd love if you could tell our audience a little bit about what was the goal of this working group and the process before we dive into maybe some of the recommendations. This working group is really unique because it's maybe one of the first, if not the first time that scientists engineers and practitioners in in the field of infrastructure have actually been put together and assembly bill in this particular case by statute to work very closely not only to understand what the science of climate looks like but how to incorporate the science of climate into the building designing constructing operating and maintaining of infrastructure particularly here in the state of california it's very unique as well in, in, in the context that not only have we looked at the data, but at the same time, what are the reservations and what are the hurdles that engineers might have moving forward in terms of how they implement the recommendations of the working group. Then the 
most important thing and what we also talked about are the issues of not only funding but equity how do we actually make sure that these recommendations are not only done in jurisdictions and areas that would need them but more importantly for those areas and jurisdictions that we don't really know at this point in time are significantly impacted by the impacts of climate so i wanted to ask you a little bit about the structure of it and something you said there, which was sort of the first time that engineers and scientists were coming together to look at these issues. From your perspective and having sat on the working group, but even prior to that, why was this so important? Why did we feel like we needed legislation to bring these parties together to address infrastructure issues related to climate change? I think on two fronts. The first one is there's always been a significant amount of information coming out of the scientific community in terms of what the impacts of climate change are to our environment, to the places that we live in, to the policies that we as the state of California, for example, are trying to formulate for our different jurisdictions and communities. But at the same time, folks like ourselves and the practicing communities here in particular, for example, LA Metro, we're building a lot of infrastructure. And as engineers or architects or practitioners, we're limited by our ability to actually build these infrastructures in terms of the codes, in terms of what we know, in terms of best practices, as well as the corresponding operation maintenance procedures that are associated with those best practices. There is resistance to change to some extent because people don't quite understand what the climate change data might imply in terms of what we call as a standard of care, in terms of should engineers build above and beyond code, who is uh, responsible for any of these untried methods, untried materials, untried technologies that are being put in or being incorporated into this infrastructure, and so on and so forth. So what legislation, this legislation really did was to clear up that, that hesitation and essentially allowed folks to not only become more open and candid about what's hindering them from incorporating the data the scientists are generating, but at the same time, allowing folks, uh, practitioners like myself, to think outside of the box. What are the things that are out there that have been, we've been keeping and have not been able to introduce and do in many of our designs So it sounds like the working group was able to bring together scientists and engineers in a way that they don't typically get together. What are some of the benefits of that? Why did that create a dialogue that was necessary at this time? There's a lot of data that's out there right now uh, from our climate scientists that engineers would love to use and would like to use, but engineers are restricted from doing so because they have what we call as a standard of care that they need to address and comply with. And at the same time, there are codes that engineers need to adhere to in order to have at least the very minimum set of standards that an infrastructure should be built on. And so in the context, however an infrastructure is built in there, for example, newer materials, uh, newer calculations, or newer ways of doing things, and it's not within a code, then the question gets asked, who takes the risk? Who is liable for such risks? Will the owners like myself, LA Metro, uh, my organization, take on those risks that engineers might not necessarily be compelled as part of the code to do? 
but we as an owner believe that we should do in terms of protecting the infrastructure that we're building in the face of an evolving climate impact. Interesting. Now, in looking over the executive summary of the report, I noticed that they uh, define a term, climate safe infrastructure. And then I assume that, that, you know, the findings relate to the how to achieve that. Can you tell us what that means? What is climate safe infrastructure? Climate safe infrastructure in, in the context of the working group is infrastructure that not only can function and considered sustainable in the context of evolving climate impacts, but at the same time provide the access as well as the equity and ability for specifically vulnerable populations to benefit from the purpose of that infrastructure. And the word climate there does not just necessarily mean, or climate safe, I should say, does not necessarily mean just working through and implying that it would stand would stand extreme weather events. But we also are looking at how, as I mentioned earlier, engineers and architects and practitioners in this field would be able to design, construct, build, maintain, operate this infrastructure, again, to maintain the benefits that they were built for. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you for that. So let's dive into maybe the some of the key findings or recommendations that really jumped out to you from this process. As an engineer, as a practitioner, what do you think is the biggest takeaways that we should be thinking about as we think about our infrastructure in the future? There are three buckets of topics, if you may, that I think folks should be aware of from the recommendations. The first one is in the context of policy, climate safe infrastructure is something that we need not only be aware of, but should be part and parcel of the values of the state of California. And that's something that we have advocated for not only internally during the discussion of, of the work of the working group, but also as a recommendation to the state legislature as well as the Strategic Growth Council to consider a policy like that. The second one is in terms of the budget. Obviously, a lot of this ideas would not necessarily become real if not for available funding, either for continued climate science research, the incorporation of climate science research into the practice of civil engineering as well as architectural engineering and some other related disciplines. But at the same time, building these kinds of infrastructures, not only to protect uh, the general public from, again, the impact of climate change, but at the same time, ensure the long-term benefits of those infrastructures. And the third one there is really in terms of codes and standards. How do engineers now plan, design, build, maintain, operate these things without a code that they can refer to or something that they can uniformly implement across the board. And that's something that we've thought long and hard about in terms of even having a starting point on on what that is. We have looked at different sources of information across the country and even invited a number of uh, different people who have expertise, not only in different rating systems that are out there, but some semblance of a uniform way of building in climate data into the design. But the best that we can come up with at this point in time is the work of the American Society of Civil Engineers, specifically the manual of practice that was developed out of the organization that somehow will guide 
absent a standard on how to design in climate data into infrastructure. So that's interesting. So I hear policy, you know, statewide legislative policy, funding, and some of the real nuts and bolts of the standards. Who owns those next steps? Clearly on the policy side, we're talking about legislators and, and probably on the funding side, but maybe there's some others. And then is it the engineering community that owns the development of the standards, or is that a collaborative effort with other folks, such as scientists and community activists and organizers and policymakers? That's an interesting question, Kif, because on one hand, let's go back to the policy, right? I mean, the legislation, legislators, for example, or, or the governor's office can initiate a process to develop policy along the lines of what I already mentioned. But without advocacy from the general public, from, for example, faith-based organizations or uh, groups that are most impacted by the development of these policies, the wording and, and the intent, as well as the implementation of those policies, may not even be reflective of the true need of the communities that those are being addressed to. And so on that very first point, and I think it's also true for the last two buckets of things that I mentioned earlier, it has to be a two-way street, right? It has to be a dialogue between the communities, jurisdictions, the people who are most impacted by these recommendations, as well as those who are in control and those who are able to, to actually affect the writing of the policy, the development of, of standards as well as the inclusion and development of funding mechanisms for these projects. Interesting. And now, now you're talking about something I'm a little more familiar with, which is sort of building a, a campaign or a, a, an initiative. I'm no engineer, as you know, so some of that stuff seems challenging to me. But it's also something, I, you know, I don't have any current memory of a campaign around engineering standards. It's not the kind of thing that really gets politicians going. How do we build a message around the importance of this, maybe taking some of the findings from the report, maybe building some constituencies so that we can actually galvanize momentum because it sounds like from your vantage, the risks are very severe and we need to get ahead of this. Yeah, and I'll just put a, an, another hat on, which you mentioned uh, when you were introducing me earlier uh, to respond to your question. You know, as the chair of the National Committee on Sustainability for the American Society of Civil Engineers, we actually have developed a roadmap to essentially affect the advocacy as well as the development of ideas and, and standards that we have just been discussing. There are four elements of that roadmap. The first one is, as I already mentioned, the standard setting process. About a month, month and a half ago, we started that process. We think it would take about two years to actually come up with a national standard least a national standard, and we hope it will become an international standard at some point in the future, but at least a national standard on sustainable infrastructure. And let's know if folks are interested in the equivalency of sustainable infrastructure versus climate safe, the working group has consciously said, at least in the very beginning of the document, that in terms of sustainable infrastructure that's defined by the American Society of Engineers, as well as climate safe infrastructure that the AB 2800 working group was, has defined, those are equivalent in, in meaning. So there is no dichotomy there between what the engineers in ASCE are trying to develop a standard for versus what the 
EB2800 group is trying to work out in terms of its recommendations. The second part of that roadmap is reinventing the process. And what that really means is engineers, like what I told you earlier, have a set way of designing and building infrastructure the way that they know. And it boils down to what the code is actually dictating as minimum standards for them to follow. In the designing, the, the reinventing the process element of the roadmap, of ASCE's roadmap, what the organization is advocating for in there, and we have already developed a flowchart on how that would look like, is essentially changing not only how engineers think about this, but looking at all the available resources to them, including climate science, if they need to, to allow for ideas, technologies, as well as materials to be incorporated in those designs to make that infrastructure climate safe. The third element there is what we call as increasing capacity. We're developing courses. ASC is developing courses as well as a certification program wherein not only are we identifying individuals and practitioners who not only know how to design these things, but to allow them to take on leadership roles in these courses and awareness efforts so that they can influence the pipeline of younger engineers that are coming up in coming out of schools or who are maturing as engineering professionals or architectural professionals. And for them to not only learn from these practitioners who have somehow had this experience already of incorporating climate science into the design, but also having uh, some form of a mentor with them to work through and in refining their skill sets as they move up in their careers. And the last piece there in the roadmap is what we call as the communications and advocacy, wherein the Civil Engineering Society has really reached out through my committee in particular to organizations like the American Institute of Architects, Engineers Without Borders, American Public Health Association, those kinds of organizations, and trying to understand with them how collaboratively we can advance not only the standard, not only the re-engineering the process, not only the building capacity, but the overall framework of climate science incorporation into infrastructure in many of the aspects that engineers are not necessarily comfortable in working in because that's not their expertise. And taking, for example, the American Public Health Association, we defer to them on not only understanding and quantifying the health benefits of a climate safe or sustainable infrastructure and working with them on what that looks like would not only help us design and create these things, but would also help them in their own advocacies in terms of public health. Wow, that's fantastic. I'm sure many of our audience would not realize that the society is that actively thinking about this future and has, has a roadmap so comprehensively laid out. It's really exciting. And it sounds like California, often a leader, but in this case is creating potentially a testbed for some of those principles to be truly operationalized, which is exciting. But some of what you said, particularly around the changing practice and the changing pipeline for engineers, sounds to me like the profession is really going to need to change a lot to address these challenges in some pretty fundamental ways. Is that accurate? And, and if so, 
do you see this that engineers and engineering is, is up to that challenge? I think it's fairly accurate assessment, Kev. And I have seen now shifting to another hat of mine here at LA Metro as the individual who is responsible not only on advancing our policies here for our procurement planning operations and construction related to climate change impact mitigation, and especially in our major capital projects, I've seen an evolution coming out of our younger generation of engineers here, really advocating for some of these ideas and strategies to be fully implemented in uh, the projects that we're building here. As you know, and thanks to the voters of LA County, back in 2016, we were given the mandate coming out of our Measure M to not only expand, but transform, literally transform the fabric and lifestyle of Los Angeles to be centered around transit. And as you could imagine, uh, with $140 billion as an initial down payment coming out of Measure M, that's a significant amount of opportunity, not only to transform the fabric and lifestyle of Los Angeles, but to transform how we actually build, operate, and maintain our transportation systems. So going back to your question in terms of engineering, in terms of how the practitioners might change and building capacity in reinventing the process. That's something that we are currently doing. We have incorporated a significant amount of uh, these kinds of newer ideas into not only our design criteria, but also in our technical requirements. We have been doing it in phases, uh, beginning with our very first big project, which was the Crenshaw line from a few years ago coming out of funding from another initiative called Measure R. And now with our multi-billion dollar projects like Regional Connector, uh, Purple Line Extensions 1, 2, and 3, we have been afforded an opportunity to not only incorporate, but start seeing, literally start seeing how some of these designs not only would look like, but start operating them uh, in the very near future to how we would like to operate them in a climate-safe future. That's a great, if I can, ask, maybe give us a couple examples. I think we'd love to, the audience would love to hear about some real concrete examples of where you are using the science in ways that might be changing your choices in how you're building and how that's sort of being integrated into the infrastructure development process in a couple specific LA Metro projects. Love to hear about those. Yeah. So one of the things that uh, we have observed, for example, in the last few years is that, you know, because there's not a whole lot of rain here in the LA area, and then when it rains, it rains a lot. So in many of, of these locations that we're operating in, we experience a lot of erosion, for example, on our embankments, or we see a lot of significant flooding in a short period of time. So one of the examples that I can point out to you that we have incorporated these strategies is on the Expo line, in one of the stations over there. When we originally designed that particular station, Rancho Park Station in particular, we were considering a 25-year design storm for that station. And you know, for any of the engineers who are listening to the podcast, you know, they can understand that that's the standard of care, that's the uh, minimum requirement that one can design an infrastructure to capture any stormwater as well as to prevent flooding infrastructure through designing. And so what we have done for that particular example is that I guess serendipitously, we're in the middle of developing our resiliency plan 
coming off the heels of our climate action plan for the agency in overlaying, for example, the uh, flood and inundation zones for a 50-year storm and a 100-year storm over our uh, planned alignments. The Rancho Park Station, coincidentally, was within that 50, 100-year flood zone that's mostly going to be impacted. And so, as you could probably sense, I would not just sit around and do nothing with that data. Merely got together with our chief engineer back then and mentioned to him that Rancho Park Station is something that we would like to somehow provide caution on for the Expo Authority to uh, at least reconsider the design so that during the operation maintenance of the station itself, that it would not experience any of this frequent flooding that's anticipated simply because of a significant amount of rainfall that might fall onto it in the next few years, given a 50, 100-year storm. And I'll spare you all the details through a series of communications with the Expo Authority through a series of cost-benefit analysis, we're able to, within the budget of the station and the project, as well as the schedule, able to redesign that station so that it's not going to flood as frequently as we anticipate because essentially it's location that's going to be impacted by a 50, 100-year storm. Interesting. Thank you. Very much appreciate that. One of the things you said early on related to the report, related to this work in general, was the potential impacts on vulnerable communities and the need to consider equity and social resilience, I think you even referred to. And I'm wondering, sort of in that toolkit of expanded toolkit that the engineer is going to need to have to address, how do you see this piece fitting in? How do you see the, what do you need to do it effectively? And how do you see that process growing over time so that we're building infrastructure that is responsive to vulnerable communities? Yeah, I'll answer that question in, in two ways. The first one is I've been, again, because of my responsibilities here in the agency, in, in many parts of the county, as well as have been invited in many parts of the country that I may not have had the opportunity to not only see, experience, but talk to the constituencies, if not for those responsibilities and appointments that I've received and have been privileged to serve in. And one of the key messages that I always keep at the back of my mind in not only developing these policies, procedures, and implementing our strategies is the point of we don't necessarily and we should not necessarily have to bring solutions to communities. But more importantly, we need to know what communities are already doing in terms of their local experiences, incorporate those into the solutions that we're building as part of the infrastructure we're building in the community. The fundamental essence there is that Many of these communities are, especially the disadvantaged communities that people talk about, they are already resilient. They have seen a lot of these issues come up and they have adapted to these kinds of issues. And more often than not, people who don't necessarily uh, live or have experienced what these communities have experienced in the past think of solutions that may not be compatible to the culture and the fabric of how the community functions and, and how they think about solutions for, for their efforts. So 
in essence, I think one sense, uh, like what I said, you know, uh, bringing solutions and working with communities is very essential. The flip side of that is, I think I mentioned this as well earlier, the input is essential from, from them as well in the context of have we invited everyone that we need to invite that should be part of the conversation. And as challenging as that might seem, I think at the end of the day, making a concerted effort in bringing in and being conscious of those folks who otherwise, if not for invitation, who otherwise not for that, would not be part of the conversation, at least being aware of, of that concept would make people think twice on moving forward with ideas just with, with people they know. I'll give you some examples of that uh, as well. Indigenous populations as well as immigrant populations. I'm an immigrant myself here in this country. And there are a lot of best practices that these groups and these communities actually are already practicing from jurisdictions and countries where they come from. Uh, or the American Indian population, for example, they have best practices that a lot of us are aware of, but because a significant number of the population is enamored with technologies, for example, people don't necessarily think about the non-technology or, or non-hardscape types of solutions that can be implemented. Just becoming aware of those best practices from immigrant and indigenous populations is a good starting point in bringing them on as well. Water conservation, as easy as that sounds, a lot of people turning off the faucet while brushing their teeth is normal. A lot of people here in our communities, here in our country, you know, because water is endemic everywhere, maybe we, we're not thinking about that kind of easy solution. Another thing is conservation. A lot of us are, are saying, hey, you know, um, let's plant more, more trees, and that's fine. But is that enough? Is that something that's in concert with the use of that space? If it is, that's great. If it's just planting trees or uh, conserving environments um, uh, without regard to the overall picture, maybe we need to revisit our strategy. Great points. Thank you. I think it's it's encouraging to hear you talking about some real real practical solutions that just anybody can do as well as these big projects. Anything else at Metro that you guys are doing that you're particularly excited about on this front that is either uh, using the science in a uh, particularly uh, forward-looking way or maybe working with the community in an interesting way or, or just something that you think is a hallmark of this new kind of practice? I could think of two, maybe three things that I'd like to highlight. There are a lot more than that, but I'd like to uh, somehow just point out on two, maybe three things. So the first one is something unusual for a government agency like us is to think of entrepreneurial ways of monetizing, for example, environmental benefits and allowing that mon the monetized value of those environmental benefits to be sellable, for, for lack of better words, in an open market or tradable in an open market. And then the proceeds and the revenues of those uh, monetized benefits actually get reinvested back into additional infrastructures that we can build here in the agency. So I'll give you one example of that. As a user of natural gas, we currently, fossil natural gas, we actually are benefiting from the generation of about 100,000 carbon credits every year that we can sell in the Air Resources Board Exchange. And then the revenues of that goes to 
an investment fund that we have set up here internally within the agency that we can use for water conservation projects, that we can use for air quality improvement projects, energy efficiency projects, things of that nature. And what that allows us to do is that given the limited as well as set funding that we have from our traditional sources, such as grants, proposition money, things of that nature, it frees up to some extent some of that money to be used somewhere else that, that's considered as a core function of the organization while we prepare our infrastructure for a climate safe world. So that's the first one. The second idea I just wanted to, to impart out there is that we as an organization really doing interesting things beyond our core function. Not only are we into housing, for example, in here, not only are we addressing homelessness, uh, not only are we addressing social types of issues in that context, but one of the things I tell people about that they're surprised is we're also involved with reduction of food deserts here in the agency. What we have done there is that um, we have identified uh, using USDA maps on where these food deserts are, deserts are here in Los Angeles, overlaid that with our stations, and then really leveraging the placement of our stations and allowing strategies like real fresh food markets and farmers markets to actually be established in many of those. In fact, the program has been very successful in the last few years that a couple of things have happened. You know, we, we actually have a map of uh, where uh, farmers markets are in many of, in or adjacent to many of our stations. A master's thesis, believe it or not, by one of our employees here reflects on a deeper dive on what can be done beyond traditional strategies to combat food deserts uh, using transit infrastructure. And then the third one is allowing people to really be aware of the power of the proximity of the, our investments you know, in these communities and thinking of non-traditional ways of using those investments in addressing social issues. And maybe the, the last thing I, I would like to, to point out in there is that we have, as with my example earlier with the Civil Engineering Society, we have really exploited in a good way, exploited in a good way, our relationships with any partner who has advanced not only ideas to us that we can use in many of our projects, but who has advanced issues to us so that we can think with them on uh, newer innovative solutions that we can do, again, using our assets and our infrastructure. So uh, one of those ideas that I can point out to is that we as an agency have a policy to look at, uh, for example, in, in the context of economic development, looking at populations, for example, chronically homeless, uh, formerly incarcerated, single moms, those kinds of, of demographics and try to understand with them on how we can incorporate them and get them out of their economic as well as social conditions. So I look at that as a social sustainability opportunity that we can use and exploit in a good way, again, to advance not only awareness of some of these ideas we already talked about, but again, putting it in a local context putting it in a situational context, again, in, in terms of, of those demographics that traditionally are not being looked at 
simply because they're not part of the conversation. So inclusivity, equity, economic development, non-traditional strategies that would allow us, again, prepare for a climate-safe future, ensuring that everybody is uh, benefiting from our investments and at the same time allowing all the voices that we could get our hands on for all of them become part of that conversation. Chris, thank you for those thoughts. That's amazing. I think a lot of our listeners would not have expected somebody with your technical background to be so inclusive thinking about the space and in the ways that you see your resources as an agency, your assets as you put them being a really community empowerment tool. Um, And that's really exciting to me. I think it reflects this larger pivot that we've been talking about of the profession towards a more comprehensive, integrated approach. I'm, I'm really excited to see that. And that's all very optimistic and, oper- you know, sort of taking this this crisis and making the best of it. But where's the gap? Is there something in the report, in the working group, in your work that you're seeing that's really maybe keeps you up at night as, as one of the major challenges that we're facing in this space and or something that you just couldn't get to in the working group that potentially you think we really, you want to let the community know at large we should be paying more attention to? The most common response gift to that question is funding and the ability of folks to actually realize not only the intent of current and any future policies, as well as ensuring, and which is something that people don't normally think about, ensuring that over the long term, the benefits of those infrastructures, as well as those solutions, maintenance of, of the benefits of those solutions and infrastructure benefits over the long term. But I look at it as while there are perceived and maybe even real gaps in terms of resources in general, and maybe there's also a relationship gap in there. I'll tackle that, those two here in in a few seconds. But the point I'm trying to make is that regardless of of what those gaps are, I think people just need to reflect, uh, including myself, uh, we need to reflect with everyone that the lack of resources or the presence of gaps should not hinder us from thinking about how we can move forward with the idea of ensuring our survival in the future in the context of the evolving and become in the severe impacts of a changing climate. And where I'm coming from that one is more often than not, I sit in many of these conversations you know, around the country and people put in a lot of good thought, a lot of good planning, a lot of a significant amount of effort, I should say. And at the end of the day, people look around the table and uh, they say, so how are we going to do this? And then six months later, you look back at that moment in time and nothing has happened. I think it's time to be selfless. I think the call to action here is is not necessarily who am I in the conversation, but the call to action is how can I ensure that us as a human entity, as a human species, actually survive in this crisis that we're facing here? And if we think of it that way, then many of the gaps many of the shortcomings, many of the issues that's preventing us from moving forward with our ideas will 
slowly, not suddenly, slowly go away. So on the funding side specifically, I was at the uh, Global Action Climate Summit a week or two ago. I guess you were there as well. And maybe you've heard this. There's a lot of money that's sitting on the sidelines. And investors have their own goals for profit as well as return on investment. And there are a lot of significant needs for infrastructure to actually benefit from from these investments that these investors may be willing to do. But is there a compelling reason for these investors to pour in their money? Yes. Is that something that the impacted communities necessarily have uh, made a case for? Maybe. Are both of those parties really understanding that this can be a win-win situation? Not necessarily. So maybe there is that opportunity for not only people to go around the table and talk about these kinds of things, but more so collectively, hand in hand, do something together and understand the goals that that each one have and make sure that it's a win-win for for everyone. In terms of equity, in terms of ensuring that folks who are mostly impacted are, are part of the conversation, I already mentioned this earlier. A lot of these solutions that people come up with are thought about and talked about you know, in a room or on the table. But is there a conscious outreach to these communities? Uh, I was in a meeting, for example, today with uh, formerly incarcerated electricians. And they were just telling me about the challenge of, for example, hiring or a, a policy to hire formerly incarcerated community groups, but a color of money or funding restriction on hiring those same groups, that needs to be reconciled. Those inconsistencies need to be understood and be reconciled. It's nice for a lot of these proclamations, a lot of strategies to be said in public forums. I think part of the challenge there is that some of these announcements, proclamations, as well as policies the devil's in the details, as they, as they say. And it's a challenge, but it's not an insurmountable challenge. And I think by, by me just bringing these things up, people who are more smart than I am uh, will be able to take on the challenge and really lo- roll up their sleeves and, and work on how to reduce and actually eliminate uh, these types, types of challenges. Wow, thank you for that. Again, a, a very thoughtful answer with a broad range of sort of elements to it. And, and I love that you brought in the investment side and how do we get investment to the table? How do we get all parties to the table? Well, we're about out of time. I could talk about this for a lot longer. You've got a lot of great examples and some really great thoughts about how to move forward on this. Any particular resources we should be sharing with our audience? They love to take next steps. We'll post the working group results. We'll try and link to the roadmap from the American Society of Civil Engineers. Anything else you're drawing on that you think folks should have access to? Yeah, so uh, some of the things that are, are out there, you know, were for, for the investment groups, for example, or folks who are interested in that kind of, of topic, there are several studies that, for example, the, the state treasurer's office has done with the Milken Institute in trying to understand the role of green bonds in building climate safe infrastructure. That's something that I have uh, poured on and have immersed myself and, and tried to understand the implications to, to our agency, and happy to note that we as an organization 
have really embraced you know the importance of having a green labeled bond not only to refinance our debt but also to tie in the financial resources that we have here in the organization to what our values reflect and that is for a climate safe infrastructure the second thing i could offer is that not only the American Society of Engineers, but you know, shout out to organizations like the American Institute of Architects, uh, American Public Health Association, local universities here, in particular the UCs here in Southern California, and as well as in the rest of the state. There are a number of studies coming out of the policy schools of, of the UCs that not only look at the science itself, but at the same time, where the frontier is in some of the issues that we already talked about. The other thing I'd like to point out is that the resources are available through the American Public Transportation Association. I would be remiss to not mention the benefits of transit, the benefits of, of riding and using transit and making use of the, at least, I mentioned this earlier, the 100 $40 billion investment, at least for the next 40 years that we're making here, to ensure that mobility continues, especially to those who need it. And for those who have the privilege to ride a car every day, we really would like to encourage them to look at and make use of these investments, because not only are these investments relevant in connecting these communities, not only as I demonstrated in our podcast here, are these making a difference in social equity, in social sustainability, as well as connecting communities that otherwise would not be connected if not for the transit infrastructure. But hey, this is an experience. It's an experience that we're working hard on to be as pleasant as possible. I know, and I would not deny it, that there are some not so good perceptions about riding uh, buses and trains. but hey, we challenge you to at least try it. I ride the bus and the train every day. My son, he's 17 now, uh, he's in college. He has ridden the bus by himself since he was 11. Unfortunately, by accident, we forgot to, to pick him up from school, but he knew how to ride the bus before that. So he was able to kind of draw from his experience with me riding the bus together to literally because of that action, I uh, was able to go home without us worrying about him. And then uh, last but not the least, I also would like to, to point out that going back to the standards, for those who are engineer types or listening to the podcast who are interested in really making a difference in codes and standards, the American South of Engineers, like what I said earlier, is writing a national standard on sustainable infrastructure. And we're looking for practitioners, scientists, and the general public who are interested in influencing, again, in influencing how sustainable infrastructure would be built in this country through those codes for them to participate in that process and try to apply and work with us through the ASCE in making sure that those codes and standards reflect all the needs of the communities the organizations, as well as the entities and jurisdictions that they need to be applied in. Chris, thank you for that. And I hope some of our listeners take you up on it. I want to thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks, Kevin. You know, this is 
such a privilege to voice out a number of my opinions here. And I really enjoyed this. And we hope to have an opportunity again to uh, at least reflect back on maybe some of the things that AB 2800 Working Group has recommended a few months from now or even a year from now, if, if so desired. So thank you again. Wonderful. I'm sure we're all going to be watching that and looking to see what's next in California and beyond. So thank you so much for joining us and thank you all for listening. We look forward to seeing you next time on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Infinite Earth Radio and Twitter by following at Infinite Earth Radio.